This week on Hacker and the Fed, we talk about the FBI's takedown of Hive, the ransomware group with over $100 million in ransom payments. We also talk about the FBI's insider threat brochure, giving companies indicators on what to look for with inside their companies. And finally, Hector asks a former FBI agent, me, questions about the FBI. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hackering the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent working my entire career in cybersecurity and now founding partner at Naxo. I'm joined as always by Hector Monsiger, former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for the large number of systems that he had the skill set to hack into. Now red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert, also friend and podcast co-host. Hector, how are you doing this week? No, I've been okay. I've just been busy with work and, and kind of getting over COVID. It's been a bit of a ride, but I'm okay. How about yourself? I Sounds like I'm doing much better than you. I certainly <laughs> didn't have COVID this week. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I'd say, to be honest with you, like the first time I caught COVID, it was really bad. But now it's not so much. I think my voice is affected more than anything else. Yeah, your voice sounds a little banged up, but you still sound good. I still, I still love your voice. All right. Hey, I like to hear that. <laughs> so I decided because of your banged up voice, maybe we'll do a little different this week. We're going to make Hacker in the Fed an FBI episode. Ooh. Let's start off with uh, first a big win this week for the FBI. The FBI announced that it took down Hive's infrastructure. Uh, pretty exciting stuff. And for those that don't know, Hive is a ransomware group that had over 1,500 victims in over, you know, across 80 different countries. And they've received $100 million in ransom payments since June of 2021. Did you read about this this week, Hector? Oh, yeah. It was a fascinating read. And I, I saw it all over InfoSec Twitter. It was... Uh... There's a lot of speculation as to how it happened and, and you know what the Department of Justice actually released. But yeah, it was a great read. Yeah, I'm really excited to get into some of the details on this one. Uh, obviously, we just know it's been reported. Um, I don't have any inside information on this, but uh, but yeah, really excited to hear when it finally comes out what, what happened. So uh, we have this ransomware group that's been going around and sort of their, their modus operandi um, was to use a 2021 exploit in Microsoft Exchange Server. It had gone unpatched, um, so there was a patch out there, uh, but they looked for victims uh, that didn't didn't have that patch, uh, and then they used the organization's uh, network management protocols to shut down the security software, then delete the logs and encrypt the data. Part of that was leaving behind a ransom note that connected back to a, a live chat panel, uh, so they lit, had this chat panel open so that they could uh, negotiate on the price to encrypt people's data. Hector, so using a, a an old exploit in Microsoft Exchange, that how do they find these servers that are that aren't patched? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's part of uh, every actor's uh, modus operandi to continuously scan and audit and identify potential victims. And there's several different ways you could do that. The main one is just to have bots scanning the internet twenty four seven. 
you know, there are great resources like GreatNoise.io and, and others that tell you and show you um, the amount of bots that are out there for any specific vulnerability. And it's very interesting to see the number of hosts that are out there. Um, you could say that some of these are compromised assets, right? These are probably um, hosts that are, are victims themselves that are out there scanning the internet. But also these are cheap VP, uh, VMs, not VPS, but VMs, virtual machines, that some of these actors are purchasing uh, either in bulk or they're purchasing uh, extremely cheap. We're talking about you know pennies on a dollar that are just sitting there scanning the internet all day. So that's one real um, way that attackers are doing it. Another way is that they're, if, the, if the actors are more sophisticated, they're looking at DNS records, they're looking at SSL certificates, and they're scanning this stuff, again, all day, every day. The difference is that when you're looking at DNS and when you're looking at SSL certificates, for SSL certificates, they're looking at the, like, the, the certificate transparency log or the CTL. Um, to find new host names and new DNS records to IP addresses they didn't really know about before. Um, and this is more specific to specific targets, right? It's, it's, it's like, for example, if they're targeting Microsoft assets, then they would have a scanner scanning for Microsoft SSL certificates all day long, okay? Um, they could also do the same thing with DNS records. They could scan or, or make queries to, uh, to Microsoft DNS records, using Microsoft, Microsoft as an example, to see if there's any new uh, Microsoft DNS records that go live during the day, and then they'll automatically scan those those IPs as soon as they're they're active. I would say the big difference between the two is that looking at SSL um, certificates for new host names is relatively passive. You're not connecting directly to your victims. Uh, DNS records you're looking at you're, you're communicating with DNS servers, and again, not directly connecting to to victim assets unless they're live. But yeah, so these are some of the ways attackers are finding targets. They can also use you know search engines and things like Shodan to identify assets as well. So yeah, so there's, there's a lot of ways for attackers to find assets online, and most of which is actually very noisy. And what would you prescribe for like listeners to keep off those lists of potential victims? Well, it's it's not necessarily keeping off the list, right? I mean, uh, the the transparency uh, certificate transparency log is is a great resource. Um, you can't really hide DNS unless you're obfuscating your DNS records, which is security through uh, through uh, obscurity. Something that's that's it's not really a legitimate uh, course of action for any organization. Instead, what I would propose is you know function as you are, but you want to make sure that whatever it is that you're deploying or you have deployed is updated and patched to the latest versions. Okay, uh, another uh, I would say alternate um, train of thought is organizations are moving away from on-prem services. So instead of running their own exchange services, they're kind of migrating over to Microsoft itself and kind of using their cloud instances for, for handling um, you know, their email. So yeah, it, it really depends on, on which direction you, you want to go as an organization. So either patch your shit up or put it off to the cloud is what you're saying. Absolutely. Patch your shit up or pass the responsibility off to someone else. Exactly. Exactly. There you go. So it was interesting to read about Hive uh, that they use the, what they call ransomware as a service. So they'd make and sell the ransomware, and then they'd recruit what they called affiliates to deploy it. And so the Hive administrators they took twenty percent for all the payments, uh, and then they'd also publish the stolen data on an Onion site called Hive Leaks. Uh, it looks like the FBI was able to find that. So, uh, you know, the FBI released the information and the, the quote in the news release was uh, using lawful means. We hacked the hackers. 
Uh, and that came from the deputy attorney general herself. And so it looked like the, the FBI had infiltrated the group's networks for the last few months. Uh, and they working with the uh, Germans and with the guys in the Netherlands, they were able to take down the Hive servers and the website. So um, I'm going to say that uh, the, the Onion servers were found in one of those countries, uh, and then the attack servers were found in another. Um, and so they used those guys' legal means um, to hack into them. Now, that's the part that's kind of uh, kind of strange to me. So historically, you don't see many operations where the FBI is proactive into hacking into things. Um, I think we saw one back in the day for some child exploitation pictures. Uh, we saw the, the FBI working on taking down those. But certainly nothing like that it happens very often where they actively pierce the machine. Uh, to get the information. But because they didn't this time, uh, they prevented $130 million worth of ransomware campaigns. That, that So there's victims out there right now with their data was encrypted, uh, but the FBI was able to find the decryption keys uh, over the last few months and supply that it, it into them. Had you seen in the news, I'd seen it a few times, that the payments for ransomware in the last uh, you know six months or so were way down. I think this uh, probably plays a big part of that. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know that you, you brought up so many good points in that. And I kind of want to address some of these these items, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, even even on our last episode, we discussed kind of looking at um, you know the fact that a lot of payments are down. A lot of these groups are making less money this year, and it has to do with a lot of organizations actually developing and employing uh, uh, recovery plans. Right, recovery plans are very important, and depending on the vendor you go with, or if you have your own internal. Uh, methodology, uh, an organization, you know, the, again, depending on 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 what it is that they're doing, they would be able to kind of uh, recover uh, much faster than if they actually paid off a ransom. That changes the game substantially, and we're going to see more successes in that area uh, as we move forward in a year and even to next year. And I'm hopeful that that's that's you know that's kind of the the strategy that, that a lot of organizations are going with. Yes, it sucks to have your data exfiltrated, and it also sucks to have your data uh, being leaked somewhere, but uh, business impact supersedes that. If you make an investment in a great product or solution that's able to help you recover your business, your infrastructure, and your data within, let's say, 72 hours, that 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 right there is going to defeat a lot of these ransomware groups. They're going to see way less money, Okay. You know, moving forward, you know, they could take it different ways, right? They could they could maybe change their methodology. Maybe they even lower their prices. Because some of these prices I've seen for ransomware uh, uh, engagements are insane. Uh, the expectation for some of these companies to pay some of these numbers is also outrageous. Fascinating stuff. I would say that um, I want to give a bigger shout out to a lot of the organizations that have made that move and are making that move this year. Yeah, no, it's really interesting to me the the some of the the stuff coming out of this report. You know, um, we're seeing the you know again the FBI found over three hundred active decryption keys. There was a Texas school district that was facing a five million dollar ransom solved, decrypted, done. Uh, Louisiana hospital facing a three million dollar ransom solved, done. The FBI gave them the decryption keys. There was a food service company that they were uh, demanding. Hive was demanding ten million dollars in ransom to unlock their shit. Done. Solved. The FBI solved it. So, you know, there's a lot of shit in the news about uh, the FBI lately and a lot of, you know, bad stuff. But it, it looks like they're really, you know, this one is a big victory for them uh, and really proactive. 
So one thing I did find interesting is Director Ray came out and said that the FBI, they found over 1,000 encryption keys tied to previous victims. Uh, and when they kind of tried to reach out to them, only 20% of the victims reached back to the FBI for help. Um, the victims had fear of uh, repercussions from the hackers or, or scrutiny from the industry. I'd really like to say, you know, if if your company was a victim of Hive, and you'll know you were a victim of Hive because there was a ransom note, you know, signed by them left on your machines, uh, you really should reach out to the FBI. Um, even if you've recovered most of your data or some of your data, get that decryption key and, and open the stuff up. Um, you know, the FBI is going to, you know, do their best to keep your, you know, victim name out of the news. But but I, I really do think it's, it's it's worth it to to reach out to the FBI. It also, you know, if the FBI ever, you know, is able to arrest these guys, um, you know, it goes into their negative pool against them. Um, it's going to show, you know, restitution. Uh, it's going to go to the penalty phase. Uh, it's going to go to everything. So um, I, I really like, you know, if people like they know they're a victim of Hive uh, to, to reach out to the FBI and be added to that uh, that list. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I would recommend anyone, if you find evidence of, of a potential compromise like this, you know, definitely speak to, to the authorities and speak to the people that, you know, could help you here. Um, but I, I do want to add some insight for the audience. I've done hundreds of pen tests and red team work over the last couple of years. You name it, I've done it in terms of different configurations, different products, dealing with different vendors. I've seen all sorts of different networks and it's... Uh, you know, one of the oddities that I found on several, this is not a one-time thing, but on several networks, I found evidence that a ransomware attempt was made. And usually, you know, the client is like, yeah, I mean, it affected one machine and it moved laterally to one file share, but that's it. Uh, I'll give you an example here. So I was doing a pen test where, you know, I was auditing file shares on the, on the network. It, it, you know, with this particular customer, they had a, a relatively uh, mature security program. And, um, and and one of the file shares that I, I found that, that had, you know, uh, a per, I would say overly permissive uh, permissions, it, it's a, to kind of dumb them down even further, basically there was a file share that allowed, you know, right access to anybody. And on that one uh, file share, I did find evidence of like a readme.html that belonged to a ransomware. After speaking with the client, they said, yeah, well, you know, we had one endpoint that, you know, uh, was infected and it, the damage was, you know, was, uh, was minimal. Um, and they didn't know that the ransomware itself was able to kind of migrate over to that one file share. Now, the file share in particular had no value. Um, it was probably there set as a test, like a test file share. There was nothing on it except that readme.html. So, yeah, so, I, you know, I know you mentioned there was a thousand keys. I'm willing to wager that at least a small percentage of those are from failed campaigns. Something to think about. Some of these clients don't even know that they've been infected or, or there was an attempt to infect the network. So, you know, something to think about. Um, it's interesting to see to see the evidence later on as you're doing like a, you know, unrelated pen test. Did you get to investigate that one endpoint? No, at that point, the, the client had their issue response team kind of deal with it and look over the file share and, and kind of isolate it down to, hey, yeah, we did have an incident with one machine, but then, you know, we shut it down before any real damage was done. But, you know, there was this, you know, aside from that story, I think this is an interesting one. And I, I guess my recommendation to the audience is if you have a network, you know, that's, that has, you know, an internal domain and you have domain-connected hosts with file shares, definitely investigate those and make sure that, you know, write permissions are only available to users or groups that really require that access. 
uh, for the most part, those those shares should be read only and and shareable only, not not writable. So that's at least a takeaway from that little story there. Yeah, and also the the members of the groups, you know, stay on top of you know if a person needs to their role changes. Uh, you know, give them those extra permissions, but when they no longer need those permissions, roll it back, you know, pull them back out of that group, you know, and stay on top of that, leaving just users sitting in a, a group with certain permissions, uh, you know, that that's really a, an attack vector that these guys use quite so, quite often. A lot of the malware you see, um, they're not written by sophisticated actors. For the most part, a lot of it is shared code, you know, and so a lot of it is also quote unquote dumb, Okay. Um, you know, they will they will definitely take advantage of access control issues, even if it's like an automated process. So, yeah, you want to be able to investigate your groups. You want to make sure your permissions are solid. And you want to make sure that, you know, if a, a specific group or user requires right permission, make sure you investigate, make sure you audit that process and, and limit limit access when possible. Now, I want to kind of jump into something that you mentioned, Chris, if you don't mind. Sure. When you were talking about the, um, I guess, the press release from the, the DOJ on the matter here, there was a quote that you mentioned from the, de- the deputy assistant. Uh, deputy attorney general. A deputy attorney general. There you go. You know, we hacked the hackers part, right? It's always interesting because one of the topics that came up me immediately once the story broke is, is hacked back a thing now? For the audience that doesn't, you know, for the folks in the audience that don't really know what we were talking about there, is the concept of hackback or hacking back has been debated for quite some time. And I'm, Chris, I'm sure you've heard this, this, this debate before. But the question is, are we in a position uh, as a government or as a people, as a corporation or as anything, uh, legally to be able to hack back into you know, an adversary? And if so, what does that look like? I will just to say that. So the deputy attorney general, we we call it a DAG, um, said that the quote is using lawful means. We hacked the hackers. So just just so the full quotes in there. Yes, that's actually very important. So the lawful means is very important as a keyword, uh, to to be honest with you. But but even so, right, the the concept of hacking back has always been something that comes up whenever we see a story like this, you know. My personal take is, and this is probably controversial, is it, it depends. I could totally see if, if we're in a war, if we're in a World War III scenario and we have active you know, uh, uh, engagements against us, I could totally see the government hacking back into some of these actors. I mean, I, it's, it's funny to me that there's rules to war. I think that, that <laughs> statement alone is an oxymoron. But, yeah, right. but what about just regular? So I have businesses, you know, when I was an agent, when, since I've been an agent, uh, that asked me, you know, either can we hack back or can I hire you to hack back into these bad guys? And the answer is always no. You, you don't think that should be? You think either there should be hack back? Again, it, it's a tough one for me. It's, a, it's definitely a tough one because I could envision myself being in a situation where I'm on a defensive team. <laughs> And, you know, you know, we're getting compromised by, uh, let's say, APT group. And it just so happens that I identify, you know, vulnerability in their end. You know, now, if it was my business, obviously, I, I'm not in a position right now to make that to make that decision. But, you know, if I was the one being hacked and I had an opportunity to kind of break back in, then I probably would. But that's me. That's hacked. <laughs> right. But that's not a decision that I would make. I would have to go upstream. I would have to go up, you know, uh, up the chain of command and say, hey, guys, Here's what we have. Here's what I've identified. Here's what we can do. Is it worth it? And I'm pretty sure the answer is always going to be 100% no. 
There's too many bad things that can happen. You know, let's just take, you know, legal issues. You can be arrested if you broke into the wrong thing. Uh, you can be sued if you damage something on the on the other end or you mess up doing something. Let's take the bigger picture. Like you're a U.S. company and you go and you hack back into a foreign country. You don't really know what's going on behind the scenes with the government. I mean, that could be seen as an act of war. This could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. Um, you know, and then the government's going to come after you for for doing it. People can decide for themselves whether they want to break the law if it's worth it. Um, I'd say don't. Uh, I would recommend never breaking the law. It's uh, in, from my line of work. But it, too many bad things can happen it, it, with hackbacks, personally. Oh, yeah. No, I, I totally agree with that. I, absolutely. I, I think the, the fascinating point here is that, you know, I would love to see uh, or even hear the, the legal perspective of someone. Maybe we, we can get the dag on one of the episodes here to kind of talk about that. Because um, I would love to hear what it looks like from the government's perspective in these kind of scenarios. Because I don't think that's anybody that's listening that would say, you know, that, that would have something bad to say about the government breaking into like a like a like a you know a, a pedophile ring or something. But then something like this, like a ransomware group. I don't think anybody has a trouble breaking into this. I mean, you say you have to go extreme with a, a pedophile group. I mean, what what do we care if you know these guys have been you know. They stole a hundred million dollars in ransom payments. Can you find somebody that would be upset that the government hacked into them? Not me personally, but I'm sure someone out there is like, "No, this is a government overreach." <laughs> I'm sure there's somebody somewhere saying that. Um, but no, I, I think this was I think this was solid, and you know, a big shout out to the folks involved that was able to make this happen. The fact that these ransomware groups are even even a thing anymore. I mean, yeah, it's it's still very recent when you look at the grand scheme of things. But, you know, now we're, what, four or five years into this really blowing up. And, uh, and, and you know, there's, there's other ways also to kind of deal with this problem. Think about it like this, Chris. There's only so many, like, underground money, money laundering operations that you could, you could find in the real world. Yeah, let's, let's, let's kind of propose a scenario. So let's say you, you're, you're part of a ransomware group. You put together the infrastructure. It's just a one-man operation. It's just you. I don't like these accusations, but I'll play along. <laughs> just play along, man. Just, just bear with me, okay? And so your operation is relatively successful. You're pulling in $80 million a year. How exactly? And that, that's a cryptocurrency. How exactly are you going to cash that out, right? You know, there's all sorts of tumblers and there's all sorts of different exchanges that, you know, that don't follow KW, uh, KYC, um, they don't follow all these different rules the governments have placed on, on uh, you know, uh, identifying uh, uh, user accounts and so on. Um, but they're still cashing out this bread at the end of the day. Um, it would only make sense that, you know, governments around the world are looking at these exchanges and trying to see if, uh, if, if they're kind of following the flow of this money. And how do you live in an $80 million world? How do you, you know, like that, that was one of the big things when, you know, when I arrested Ross Ulbricht, like, you know, yeah, he's running a $1.2 billion drug empire, but how do you live that lifestyle without being caught and you're not going to work every single day? Exactly. I mean, there's so many indicators with this that I almost feel like a lot of this money just sits idle, right? You could only pull out a, a chunk of it at a time. And even then, every one chunk that you pull out is going to have a potential tie back to you. So, yeah, indicators. So that's a good segue into our next story, Hector. Um, and I got, a, I got a little bone to pick you with this next story. So, so you sent me this over. It was a, uh, it's called the FBI Insider Threat Brochure. And it's uh, to provide information to people so they can find out what their insider threat is. Now, 
are you sending me this because on our last episode you predicted you predicted that the insider threat was going to be the big thing of 2023 um so is that why we're talking about this today well there's two reasons why (laughs) (laughs) one one i'm trying i'm trying to i'm trying to provide some weight to uh to my prediction uh but also no I, i saw this in passing i saw somebody tweet this i wish i could remember who tweeted it but somebody tweeted this link. I checked it out. I was like, "Wow, this is pretty cool." Uh, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that you know the FBI or CISA or anybody is producing content that 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 you know an organization could take. This is really geared towards organizations, right? They could take this information, read through it, and and hopefully build plans around it and start to strategize around. It. So yeah, this was fantastic. Yeah, I thought it was great. I think we can go through some of it, but you know, we'll like uh, we said uh, last week or the week before, uh, a listener wanted us to include all our links. So in the podcast description, we'll include the link to this brochure, and they can read along with it. But I found some of the personal factors and the organizational factors and the behavior factors really interesting, and unfortunately, I, on some of them, I fit the category. So I was a little weir- weirded on that one. But but it's a it's a really good resource uh, for people to share. You want to go through some of these factors? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's please do let's do that. All right. Do you want to raise your hand, or you want to admit if any of them are yours? <laughs> well, I, I don't want to identify myself as an insider threat just yet. <laughs> but uh, but no, some some of these you're right. Some of these could be very general or vague. I guess the idea is you you know you want to look at this um, in, in its entirety and and kind of develop a program around this. I mean that's that's the idea really. We can't just focus on one thing or another because we, even when you look at like you know, personal factors, right? There's a lot of stuff with personal factors that maybe some of our audience members would check off. I know I will, but the reality is, is that, you know, once you take all of these into consideration, you could probably start to identify potential risks within the organization. Yeah, exactly. Did I ever tell you the insider story of mine that happened when I was uh, very young and very new to cybersecurity? No, no, please tell. All right, so... I went to a university, James Madison University, uh, and this is when I wanted to be a doctor. So I was going through there to pre-med and all that. And I became friendly with a university cop, a guy named Sid Hartman, uh, who I owe my entire career to. So I I decided not to be a doctor, that I wanted to be in law enforcement. Um, Sid convinced me that uh, I should go into something with computers because computers will be the wave of the future involved in all sort of crime. And so I stayed and got a master's degree in computer science. So I, I stayed at the university working there, and uh, I sort of kind of became the computer guy, but I was more interested in like the uh, law enforcement side of things. Um, I was also working nearby in uh, another town as as a cop, and so I wanted more of the cop issues. But you know, because I I didn't want to do like the the setting up printers and AD stuff and that sort of thing. So um, I, I hired a kid. So at JMU, there's a thing called the Campus Cadets. And so it was like a, a quasi-police type thing where the students had police radios and they had a key, keys to all the academic buildings. And they offered like safety escort home. Um, like if, if someone didn't want to walk home at night by themselves, they, they'd get a, you know, a, a walk home from two, two cadets. And so it was just like an extra set of police eyes on, on the streets and all that. Well, anyways... 
I hired one of these cadets to to give me a help, give me a hand with some more of the computer type details. And you know, I I spent some time with him until you know he got up to speed, and I gave him access to all the records and and the investigative notes and everything that was going on within the police department. You know, I got to know him a little bit. You know, and then gave him access. Well, come to find out, I hired the kid who became a JMU campus cadet um, because uh, he and his crew used the keys and the police radio to break into all the buildings uh, and steal the equipment at night. Steal, like, the overhead projectors and computers and all that. No way. This was the crew that we were tracking. And now I gave him access to all the police records of where we had hidden cameras and how we were trying to track this group down and all that. I really screwed this one up. Wow, I no know. way. Yeah. 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 Did he approach you or did you find him? I found him. And I like it must have been a dream come true because he just he got through the becoming a cadet, you know, the, that whole process and the due diligence and looking into him. I because he was the only one that was also a computer science major. I was like, this guy is gonna be the guy that can help me. Got you, got you. Yeah, you know, that's fascinating because you usually hear the other way around. Where like someone gets a random message like, hey, listen, by the way, I saw that, you know, you're working at so-and-so and and I was just wondering, um, do you have a position available? And then boom, it turns out to be like an insider threat or a nation state actor. So it's uh, like you said, I'm sure it was a dream come true for him. But it's interesting to see how insider threats develop organically, at least in this story. Yeah, it was it was it was strange to me, but it, it really is callous to me over like I don't trust anybody. (laughs) <laughs> I think my kids are the biggest insider threat I, I know, uh, letting them on my networks and shit. No more. <laughs> well, kids usually are that, that 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 first insider threat for sure. <laughs> All right. So let's go through some of these factors. Let's decide whether it's us. I'll decide whether it's this kid that eventually did get arrested. Uh, you know, we, we, we caught him. And I guess, man, talk about embarrassment to me. But but we caught him. How did How did you guys catch him? Uh, I believe, to be honest with you, I believe that same sergeant, Sid Hartman, caught him, uh, if I remember right, just happened to be like hiding out in a building. And this kid comes around the corner and gets him while he's like unscrewing uh, one of those projectors out of the screen. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, big shout out to Sergeant Sid, man. He's, yeah. he's he, That guy was awesome. Yeah, I would love to find Sid Hartman one day. If anybody knows Sid Hartman and can reach out to him, I would love to, to meet up with him. I'll buy him dinner. Um, I would love to have him on the pod. Really talk about cybercrime way back in the infancy of it. That would be such a great conversation piece, just, just you guys. But not only, not only your personal connection, but the fact that he was already foreseeing that cyber was going to be a... a you know, a, a major part of, of law enforcement. So yeah, big shout out to him for that. Yeah, so it's good. So all right, personal factors, greed or financial needs. I think everybody's got financial needs. That's not that's that's a tough one. That's a tough one, but I almost feel like um, you know this might be you know there might be some indicators here. I give you a good example. Um, a good example would be uh, a department where they're they're kind of like sharing or they're distributing. Uh, credit cards to, to each employee for business expenses. You know, the uh, indicator there would be to look for people that are actually overspending beyond their scope. You know what I mean? That's definitely a red flag. I saw that at one of the companies I worked with where, you know, you know, they kind of had like a carte blanche. Hey, spend what you can because it was a, a nonprofit tied to a for-profit and the for-profit was basically, you know, using it as a, as a, as a way to save taxes. But some of these folks are like ordering like big Buddha statues, like twenty thousand dollars statues. 
for their office needs. Can you believe that? <laughs> yeah. So I think I think that's definitely a red flag and indicator for sure. Divided loyalty and or adventure thrill seekers like the James Bond wannabes. I could see that. I could see someone that does it just for the fun of, for the thrill of it. Um, I know the, one of the biggest FBI insiders, Hanson, Robert Hanson, he did it because he wanted to show people how much smarter he was than everybody else. Yikes, that's terrible. Yeah, he was uh, he was put in charge of finding the Russian mole himself while he was the guy. So, uh, <laughs> so that's a great movie if anybody wants to check it out. Hey, Chris, what's the name of that movie? It, Breach. It's a it's a really good thriller. Um, I, I'd recommend it. So if you're into that sort of thing. Oh, yeah, I'll definitely check it out today. Uh, I guess that fits in a different category. There's the ego self-image. So I guess Robert Hansen is a big ego guy. Well, how I would say so if we, if, if we were to look at it, at least from your perspective in law enforcement, uh, what would be a good red flag or indicator that you have someone like that within your team? As, as far as uh, insider threat or the ego self-image? Well, I would say the insider threat. You know, how, how can an organization identify someone like that? I would assume by their actions, maybe uh, – um, you know, the way they carry themselves could be a potential indicator. Yeah, that's a big one. Um, you know, one of the big ones that for the uh, for the FBI, and this is for, you know, for classified information, but organizations can get treated the same way. It's like when people are vulnerable to blackmail, uh, if they, you know, have gambling debts or they have affairs, um, something that they're trying to keep from their loved ones. Um, you know, that is a big one, because if that information gets out um, then that person is easily compromised. Oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I, I was, uh, you know, kind of to touch on the divided loyalty um, factor that the FBI put in there in this report. Would an indicator be someone that um, has jumped between businesses a lot recently? Like, let's say over the last five years, they've, they've done ten different companies. Yeah, I'd say that's an indicator. I mean, you're, you're not going to suspect that person just on that own, but it, you know, if they they bouncing back and forth, and you know, they don't really have a loyalty, um, you know. And this isn't we're not talking about someone that just takes classified information. The insider threat are people that that take work from one business and go to the next one um, where they don't see it as a big deal. But they load up that thumb drive with all their emails or or however they're, they're they're taking the information right before they walk out the door, you know, taking that intellectual property or even the business contacts. You know, that that's a, that's, you know, what we're talking about here. Oh, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And then finally, from the personal factors list, I think was was interesting is problems at work. I think this is the biggest indicator um i've definitely seen this you know in previous jobs where you have someone that uh you know for whatever reason they've become aggressive um they no longer respect leadership and or they're argumentative with pretty much anybody at any point these are always folks that you know they're either going to say i feel like from my experience it's been 50 50 they're either just angry at the situation and eventually they're just going to leave and move on or on their way out, they're going to just say YOLO and, and do something crazy. Yeah, they're going to do, yeah. Odds are they're going to do something crazy, you know, take some shit or something along those lines. But yeah, some of the behavioral indicators, I thought they're kind of fun, but but you definitely see it all the time. You know, someone making too many copies, blatant disregard for the computer policies, you know, installing programs when you're not supposed to be. Um, and then one I found strange, uh, because I definitely did this a lot, especially when, you know, when I was in the FBI, it was like either uh, connecting to remote access uh, to networks while you're on vacation, sick or weekends or late at night. I felt like when I was at the FBI, there's no such thing as off hours. So, but maybe there are. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. That's a tough one for sure. Because I know there's some organizations, they'll have a policy. They'll have like a data loss prevention policy or DLP where the expectation is that like at six o'clock, that's it, no more activity. 
But then you have guys like me or you, you know, I, I know, I know you're a hard worker. I'm a hard worker. We have no problem working till 11 o'clock at night just to get work done. Um, and so, you know, we don't want to accidentally raise a red flag just because we don't, you know, overachievers in our position or whatever. Uh, but I could see that as, as something as well, where they're going beyond the scope of their job. Yeah, my brother-in-law, he used to work in the banking industry, and they had a policy where you had to take two weeks off, two consecutive weeks off, and not have any contact with work whatsoever. Um, I guess they felt like if there was uh, someone came in and did your job for two straight weeks, uh, it, they would be able to sniff out whether you were doing anything, uh, you know, taking inside information or doing anything fraudulent. So you put anything, any weight into that? Wow. You know what? I've never thought about that, but that sounds fantastic. One from the perspective of the worker. I would love two weeks with, <laughs> without, without even thinking about my job. Oh, man, that would be fantastic. Uh, but no, from from the defensive point of view, that makes a lot of sense, especially if you have someone remote or you have someone that's taking vacation time. You don't want them even, even touching your network because that's going to always open the potential risk. Potential is a key word of, of you know, something going amiss, Right. Uh, a malicious Wi-Fi network somewhere or physical access, maybe kidnapping and then access to a keyboard. So, uh, yeah, that, I think that's a great idea. So the FBI in this brochure leaves the people, you know, a few tips that they can uh, can can help the organization. Um, and I highly recommend, you know, anyone in part of an organization take a look at this, you know, education and training protecting and labeling proprietary information, you know, make sure it's labeled. If you want to protect it, you know, make sure people know it's sensitive information. Um, screening new employees, you know, making sure nothing's going on. Um, routinely monitor computer networks for suspicious activities. And then ensuring security personnel have the right tools uh, they need to do their job. So, you know, you can't just tell people to, to secure information and, um, and not give them the tools to do it. You know, um, I found... I found this information that the, the you passed on to me. Uh, it's also on CISA. There's a whole insider threat section where it lists, um, you know, information from DHS and DOJ and FBI. The FBI's intellectual property protection fact sheets there. DOJ's reporting intellectual property crime. Uh, we'll also put that in the description of the podcast. The uh, link to that so people can find those resources. That is awesome. I really love that. And big shout out again. Big shout out to the FBI and CISA for this. This is all extremely important and useful information. Um, there's one last point I wanted to make before we kind of uh, move on here. It's I understand an organization's concerns, especially when they have client uh, employees rather working remotely or on vacation. The one idea that I've I've definitely you know spoke to clients about is if you're going to have employees that are working remote, if you're going to have employees that are taking vacation and need to access the internal uh, corporate network, uh, your best bet is. Um, is to to kind of distribute the devices yourself and for the employees not to use personal devices. For example, there's no reason why, you know, an employee's personal iPhone should be connected to your corporate network and or their personal laptops. Um, if an organization is managing these devices, then they could isolate the problem if a problem arises, uh, assuming that like no crazy zero days have been used against the devices, right? But the idea is that if you're managing the device, you have more control rather than allowing employees connecting rogue devices to the network. So something to think about. 
Oh, great points, Hector. Thanks for thanks for pointing those out to the listeners. So it wouldn't be a proper FBI uh, episode of Hacker and the Fed if uh, I didn't give you the opportunity to ask me a couple questions, and I, I may I may not answer them completely, but who knows uh, about the FBI? Um, whatever you want to know, Hector, you go ahead and ask away, and I will see if I can answer that. Question. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna make this fun if you don't mind. No, please. Uh, I, I think the audience would like that. You know, I would have totally understand there's some things you cannot answer. Can the FBI or do the FBI purchase zero days or security tools for for their engagements? Is that something that the FBI can do or cannot do? I don't know about zero days, but I know they test security um, applications. They they they. they they buy it in order to know how it works and how it functions. I think they have a very extensive research laboratory um, to learn how everything works. Um, you know, if you need to make an offensive play against something, obviously it's best to have it to learn how to to, to beat it. Uh, but you also want to know how something works if you're going to utilize it. Um, uh, the FBI, you know, they secure their 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 own networks, um, and so they. They buy it and they dig it apart to make sure it functions properly, make sure like even all the chips uh, on a physical device are accounted for. There's not extra chips. Uh, you and I talked about recently on a podcast that some devices were found to have extra chips. Uh, the FBI would definitely find that and they would dig it apart and look into it. So if the FBI has to purchase new equipment, let's say new laptops, new networking devices, right? Going off the example we just gave. Does the FBI have their own internal division that takes apart this these uh, this hardware, or do you guys subcontract out to like another third party? As far as so, I wasn't involved in this. As far as I know, and I know there was some sort of problem where they took apart they internally they 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 did it. They take apart all the devices and double check that they're exactly the way they're supposed to be. I know when I worked as part of the forensics lab in Quantico. They actually um, are given the source code for any major tools they're bought. So they go, they can go through. And I, I knew the the lady that did it. She was really good about reversing um, all the source code and make sure there was no functionality that, in it that wasn't uh, reported. And I know you wasn't part of that process, but maybe you know, maybe you know, like the kind of the the, the response for the next question. So in the events, the in, your internal teams or the internal teams at the FBI identify either a backdoor, hardware backdoor, or they identify a backdoor in a software that they were, you know, they're testing uh, or, they're, or they're purchasing. What's the next, next course of action? So that would go probably over to the other. So the FBI has two sides of the house, and this would go to the other side of the house. I worked on the criminal side. This would go over to, like, national intelligence side. Um, so they, they would see this probably as an attack on the FBI. Uh, open a full investigation, try to find where in the chain that this extra chip was added or this extra software was added, uh, figure out functionality, uh, and then decide whether it would be more beneficial to run it with like fake information to then ju- or just call out the organization or the company or the person that was involved in this or to even run it with real information um, in order to gain intelligence sources, because um, sometimes not letting on that you know that you're onto them can gain you more information. You can figure out who's listening, who's doing what, and find out you know leaks internally. Um, you know it's a big decision process. Uh, I think it's rare if we know that something's compromised 
to let it just run. Um, normally, they would uh, do something to make it look like it's running um, and, and try to try to draw people out that way. That's fascinating. Thank, thank you for that. I mean, that's that's something that we don't hear about. See, the audience, like myself, because you know I'm very much an outsider myself. Um, we don't really get to hear about things like that. What, what, what we usually see or read about the FBI is what we see in movies or sometimes in like a random report that'll come out, you know? So fantastic stuff. Trust is extremely important. I know that when when uh, when you and I began to work together in, in, in our capacity, there was a lot of trust that you had to put in me and vice versa, Right. Um, you know, from my perspective, all I knew is maybe, you know, maybe you could have screwed me at some point. Maybe if I would have said the wrong thing, you know, it could have backfired and blew up in my face. Now, I'm more interested in your perspective here. I know there have been incidents in the past where the FBI worked with, uh, uh, you know, a cooperating witness or, or what have you, okay, where that person probably had become even more rogue or were still doing criminal stuff. How do you deal with that? As a special agent, if you find out that the person you're working with turned out to be, you know, uh, kind of a jerk and they still continue with that, uh, their illegal activities. So let's take like your your scenario and we'll play it out that way because there's so many scenarios leading up to it. So, you know, we talked earlier that you had to come clean on every single thing possible. Um, so you admitted to things you had done, hacks you had done that the FBI had no evidence whatsoever had, had, had you had done. Um, if it turned out that you were doing bad things, then we've got you on a lot more stuff, uh, than we ever had to on before crimes. Uh, you know, so, uh, it, you know, besides it being personally, it would have been hurtful to me. It would have been from a career standpoint, it would have been somewhat embarrassing. Um, it probably would have stymied my career somewhat. Um, but you would have felt the most pain on that. And that's, you know, unfortunately, going into that situation, you know, that's the way the FBI plays it up is that, you know, we make sure that you have more skin in the game than we do. It would it would have been very bad on your side if, if that was true. Um, again, there's we could I, I use your scenario because I know it intimately. Other There could be other scenarios where, you know, you know, I, I've heard of, you know, mobsters, you know, FBI agents working for like Whitey. Um, what was his name? Whitey Bulger, right? Whitey Bulger. Yeah. I mean, Whitey Bulger. I mean, talk about the FBI handler in that case was arrested. Um, wow. Because, no yeah, way. Yeah. The FBI, I think the FBI agent was arrested that, that, um, that handled him. So, you know, sometimes these guys, you know, the FBI agents go too far with it. And then, you know, you know, because they're trying to make the careers or they don't want that embarrassment of saying, Hey, this guy's out of control or, you know, raising their hand and saying, I, I can't, do this anymore um you just you know for one reason or another you know and and i think whitey bulger killed people um while he was an fbi informant wow that yeah that's terrible absolutely allegedly yeah allegedly for sure but i I tell you man that's uh it's a tough one because you know you're just trying to do your job and you're you're working within the confines of your job and uh, using the tools available to you but then you know, if someone else deviates, it could very much affect you and your career. So it, it's difficult for you guys as well. Well, it, the, the the difficult part there is that you are around. So you go through the FBI Academy. You learn from those guys. You learn to be a team and you're a member of a team and you trust those guys. I mean, so I go through a door and I know the five guys stacked behind me have a gun out. And at some point, their gun is somewhere near my back. And I don't worry, the back of my head, I don't worry about that. I don't worry about them shooting you. 
So then you start working with a cooperator and you kind of feel like you're on the same team as him. And you would never think you'd be like, well, I can trust my teammate. That guy's a teammate of mine. We're going to do it. So you sort of have to stay guarded the entire time, which is very difficult when you work with someone for, for 12 hours a, a day, um, seven days a week. You know, I was recently listening to a Lex Freeman podcast and he's like, um, you know, he gets a lot of pushback for these guys. He's like, people come on here and you you give me shit for not asking them the hard question or really get them in their face. He's like, you sit with someone face to face and try to try to ask all, you know, a really hard question or, or, or get up in their face. You know, you can't do it. So it's kind of the same way with that. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to sit next to the cooperator and deal with them. Um, but then also be guarded against them, but then also trying to be friendly with them in order to, to get the, you know, to get out of them what you need out of them. It, it's a, it's a difficult world. I'll say that. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it sounds, it sounds it. We, we spent that short amount of time together. It gave me a lot of perspective about law enforcement, uh, at least on your level. Cause I, I never really got to spend any time with like an NYPD officer or anything. So I don't know how their day to day operations are. But yeah, it was interesting to see how you guys operated a function and the level of trust is involved. Um, I, don't, I don't think the audience really gets to see that in film or books or anything like that. If someone were to join the military, uh, depending on the situation, whether it went to college or not, depending on the ASVAB results, depending on other tests, depending on all of those factors and results, they will be placed by the military into different departments or or, or different elements of the military. Does that work with the FBI as well? Or can you choose your direction, what it is you want to be? There is no choice whatsoever in the FBI. Uh, The FBI chooses it for you. So on the, I believe it is the Wednesday night of week six, and this is when I went through the academy. um, It's called orders night. Um, So you have your whole normal day, and then they order a bunch of – you normally eat in the cafeteria and all that. On this night, they ordered a bunch of pizza, and we go into a classroom, and we all sit there. And they they call us up uh, one at a time. Uh, They pick your name out of a hat, and you you read it. So this is to find out what your career is going to be, so your career path, whether you're going to do – criminal, cyber, uh, foreign intelligence, um, or, or terrorism, um, and what field offices you're going to be assigned to. So 56 different field offices. And you are, before that time, you're able to rank them, uh, kind of like the order that you'd prefer them in. That really doesn't mean much. You know, you're there to be at the, the needs of the Bureau. So you, ad- you, you agree to join the FBI, you get six and a half weeks of FBI training, and then they tell you what you're going to be and where you're going to be. And so... As we go into that night, everyone throws 20 bucks into the hat, and the person who gets the field office lowest on their preference list gets the pocket of money. So you go in there and one at a time, and they pull out, you pull out your slip and you read it in front of the class. And you see guy's face either turn white or guys are happy, or the guy in the, the end who gets the, uh, the, the hat full of money. Um, all different reactions from that. Um, so I, uh, on my preference sheet, I put cyber and New York as my top two choices and I got both of them. So I got lucky on that one. Yeah. You lucked out big time. Uh, well, I mean, around, uh, when I was in my class, you know, New York, anyone that, that, that asked for New York got New York. Cause remember you're, you're on a very, you're on a starting government salary, uh, and the cost of living in New York is, is very, very difficult. So I know some agents, you know, they live two or three or four guys in, in, in one apartment just to, to start off there. Well, imagine the guy that breaks into an apartment and, <laughs> and there's four FBI agents there looking at him like, dude, our lives suck. 
<laughs> You're getting it today. <laughs> I had a class. I had a squad mate, a guy named Vinny. He's a great guy. He, he's left the Bureau since then, too. We were out at an event. We The FBI Cyber Division held an, an event at Fordham University every year where international law enforcement would come over. And, and I, I feel bad. I'm telling Vinny's story. But um, I split off for Vinny uh, and went upstairs to the room because we'd been working all day. And we got to stay in the dorms at Fordham. Vinny was going to his car to get like his pillow or something like that. Uh, and on his way back in, he was getting, he got mugged. Um, the guy pulled a gun on him. And, no way. Yeah. And can you imagine like what the shit luck is of trying to mug an FBI agent? <laughs> Vinny's a really smart guy, street smart guy. Um, he was able to talk his way out of it. You know, he just kind of put his hands in the air and he always kept his badge around his neck on a chain. He slowly put his thumb under the chain and pulled out his badge. The guys backed off and took off. Uh, he didn't have to pull his gun or get into a shootout or anything like that. So, so props to Vinny for being so street smart and knowing exactly how to handle him in that situation. But I can't imagine what those guys were thinking. Like, oh shit, I just we just mugged an FBI agent. Oh, you know they they shitted themselves. Like, they, there's no way they did not go home stressed out. They probably did not sleep for months, my friend. <laughs> so I'm sure they ran like hell because they knew they were coming after him. That's the thing, you know. Yeah, when you screw with the FBI, they, you know, so it's a brotherhood that comes together and comes back, you know. So oh yeah. Well, as, am I telling a guy that hacked into InfraGuard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my bad. Big, by the way, big big shout out to InfraGuard. You know, the one thing I'll say about InfraGuard, man, and a big shout out to them is that they've had a lot of their like senior members over the years reach out to me and talk to me or whatever. Uh, very nice people. So uh, again, big shout out to all of them uh, all across the country. I am the close personal friend of New York's Infragard right now, and so yeah, he. I'm sure he uh, he would appreciate uh, any sort of uh, props that you give him. So yeah, join your local Infragard chapter. That would that's a great plug for the FBI, FBI episode. Um, Infragard is a, an organization uh, run by the FBI. It's a public private, you know get together where once a month they have meetings talk about cybersecurity. if you're in the field uh it's it's a great resource look, look it up in guard i have local chapters uh almost every in every area of the country oh yeah i would say let, let your guy know at the new york chapter to hit me up i'll definitely go in there and, and talk about stuff you know all right all right i'll let him know so maybe maybe we'll go in together we'll we'll, we'll have a, a do a presentation for him there, so. there you go that works out <laughs> Well, that was a fun talk, Hector. I, I appreciate you talking to me today. I uh, appreciate you coming on and uh, have another great episode of Hacker in the Fed. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was fantastic. I hope the audience had some great takeaways from this, not only on the content-wise, but I think the Q&A at the end you know, really uh, uh, gives a perspective. And we should probably do that more often, to be honest. Yeah, it's fun. So we'll definitely do it. Sounds good, brother. All right, talk to you later. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.